Mumbrella's Sports and Entertainment Marketing Summit takes place on the 7th of April 2022 at Royal Randwick Australian Turf Club, bringing together the best of sports and entertainment marketing sectors. Get access to both conference streams, great networking opportunities and exclusive social events. Hear from industry experts from DDB, OMD, the brand builders and more as they tackle the biggest opportunities, challenges and trends for the year ahead. Purchase your early bird tickets now and score $100 off. Head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash sports dash entertainment to redeem your savings. Hello, this is the Mumbrella Cast. I am Damien Francis, and after hosting this uh, Mumbrella Cast for over a year, I finally discovered I don't have to start it with Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. It has been one hell of a wild ride. Joining me this week on the wild ride in Australian media and marketing, managing editor Olivia Crimmel. Hello, Damien. And Mumbrella Cast producer and self proclaimed Mumbrella Melbourne Bureau Chief, Callum Jaspin. Hey, Damo. Later on, Cal is going to talk to Simon Lee, partner and executive creative director at The Hallway, following his Boys Do Cry mental health campaign this week. The conversation will touch on how the campaign idea came to life. Of course, one of the key kind of um, unwritten, unofficial commandments of masculinity is that boys don't cry. Why the creative industry might face issues of depression and anxiety at a higher rate. Rejection. Constant and consistent rejection comes part and parcel with the, with the territory. For every one fantastic idea that gets up, there's 50 where you have poured your heart and soul into this thing and someone just puts up their hand and says no. And how his personal experience helped him encourage others to speak out. Um, I've been sat there about to present something with sweaty palms, that odd sort of um, almost out-of-body kind of feeling sitting there. And and occasionally I I have found myself going, gosh, I wonder if anyone else in the room here is actually feeling this. Before we get there though, it's been a busy week in the media sector in particular. Cal, what's the Umbrella Cast menu for the day? The first item we'll be discussing today, Damo, is Roy Morgan delivering its total news readership figures uh, alongside new figures on magazine readership. And we'll also be discussing what went out as a Dr. Mumbo on Monday regarding Seven's reported million dollar interview with Adele which uh, went south pretty quickly when it apparently came to light that the interviewer, Matt Duran, had not listened to the artist's full album. I've heard the first rule about Dr. Mumbo's is you don't talk about Dr. Mumbo. That dad joke, that too early for the dad joke, sorry. I haven't heard that that rule. Maybe that's... um, (laughs) My apologies. The rule's being kept too properly. Moving right along. The Sydney Morning Herald this week retained its spot as Australia's most read news brand in a new total news figures from Roy Morgan. The figures, which include print and digital news, reported the nine owned publication being read by 8.7 million Australians based on the last four weeks averaged over the 12 months to September, up from 8.4 million in August. Sister newspaper The Age was second with 6 million, while National News Corp title The Australian followed with 5.7 million despite being behind a hard paywall. This is the second set of statistics released since the Emma metric was dumped by Think News Brands in April this year. 
I personally have always had a little bit of an issue with readership figures, if I'm honest. It's pretty easy to argue that it was uh, one of the least scientific figures uh, possible uh, way back in, in the day, uh, 2013, in fact, uh, co-founder of Mumbrella, Tim Burrows, wrote an opinion piece on that note, questioning readership figures of magazines that looked like they were 10 times their circulation, which was quite the number. Uh, and personally, I remember working for, for publishers where readership was just uh, casually around the five times circ figure. Obviously, it's a lot more complex now. Digital is, is a big play. The big question in my mind, um, and I'm going to point to you on this one, Cal, is how are these figures being calculated? Yeah, so um, the figures are compiled, first of all, by Roy Morgan Research, which, as we know, became the sole provider for um, the, the, the total news metric earlier this year. Uh, and then they supply those figures to Think News Brands, which is a, a kind of... Uh, a body whose stakeholders are, as we know, um, Seven West Media, Nine, and News Corp. And then uh, they will subsequently decide whether or not um, or what they want to do with those figures. Uh, so I, I spoke to um, the CEO of Roy Morgan Research just before, um, Michelle Levine, as well as Howard Second from, from Roy Morgan, as well as Vanessa Lyons, who runs Think News Brands, just before we came in this podcast. Getting the full scope of how those figures are put together, it's kind of twofold. The, the first um, and kind of uh, main stream for that is they speak to just over a 1,000 Australians per month, and that's a kind of survey type type um, deal that's the same as they've been doing for many years. So that's about 60,000 people per year, and then obviously um, – uh, th those are kind of um, either face-to-face -face or now it's a bit more hybrid um, with COVID and things like that. And then the second stream of that is what they call a digital panel. Um, the, the official title is a web audience measurement. So that's sort of VPN, which um, people who sign up for or agree to do it will put on their computers and then Roy Morgan can kind of passively observe what they do online. And that's, so that's a kind of, you know, um, viewpoint of everything they do online. And there is about actively at the moment 3.5 thousand people that are doing that. So I guess that is a much more, obviously a smaller sample size, but it's a much more accurate way to look because um, as as they told me, uh, I think it was Vanessa that told me this, that it, it, the survey I guess similar to what we have spoken about previously with the way radio figures are compiled, they're not super, super accurate. I mean, they are accurate, but it, people have a bit of difficulty remembering that high, high level of detail. So it, it obviously does make you, you know, you wonder you are extrapolating these figures and that's 60,000 people over the course of a, a, uh, the year extrapolating that to what we have about 25 million in Australia. But the other interesting thing is, you know, with with this total news figure that we're now working off, Vanessa said what, you know, we have these questions. For example, one that's been brought up this week was um, the AFR, which was, I believe, about 3.5 million readers. You're not using the traditional metrics of uh, 
print readership and then people reading an article on the AFR website. What the figures now include are what they call direct and indirect readership. So you've got on-platform and on-platform probably in more in more simple views. On-platform are what you would kind of imagine as being someone reading the AFR or going onto the AFR's website and reading an article. But then off-platform, which is, I guess, something that is um, – more important now that digital news readership has kind of become the dominant way that people are reading news. And that's through things like Facebook, Google News, Apple News, and that's all included in these total figures. So, for example, you'll get a notification on your phone and it will say, you know, whatever the, the news headline is and you'll open that and it might give you a couple of paragraphs and then if you want to keep reading, you have to either go to that website or you have to pay for the subscription. But quite often... It has the listed example, for example, if it's the age. Roy Morgan do have a partnership with Apple News that they're working with. So, you know, you do get some of these kind of freemium type articles. So I think um, what what the, the two stakeholders in this process, Roy Morgan and Think News Brands, were saying to me is that I think a lot of people have questions right now over those metrics, but it's about kind of changing the perception for what those total news figures actually include. And that is that kind of direct and indirect off and on platform um, figures that that they're now working on. I think changing the perception is a really good segue into my next question, which, uh, I mean, look, everything you've just said uh, is, hey, it's quite complex. There's a lot going on there, but, One of the big issues with measurement and readership in particular um, that's been plaguing the industry for quite some time is trust. And and this is the big issue that that Emma had. And obviously, Emma is uh, sadly no longer with us. But um, one of those, the issues there was was that not enough people were trusting in those figures um, and actually using them. Uh, And again, Mumbrella has covered this many, many years ago about the amount of people, amount of media agencies who are actually uh, using them and, and uh, letting Emma help dictate their strategies a bit and, and their end results in that were not very many. Uh, so I think the the next important question here then is, you know, trust from the buyers, Cal. Is there trust? Do people believe that this is a good metric to follow and, and base strategy on? Look, uh, I think, and I'll try not to waffle on so much on this answer, but um, I think basically the, the impression that I've got is that it's all it's all the industry has. They're currently Roy Morgan is the the sole provider for um, for news readership figures, and I think um, I, I hope your you know, answer is going to get better than it's all the industry <laughs> has. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I mean, speaking to Sam Giffray from um, Carat, uh, sorry, Karen Perth. He's the group investment director there. He said that the move to ditch Emma this year has certainly provided a positive shift for the industry um, as it now brings clarity to all the parties involved, be that the agencies, the advertisers and the publishers with one total news figure rather than multiple from different sources. Uh, for, for agencies in particular, he said that it allows them to precisely plan their campaigns um, better as well as making better informed investment decisions for their clients and um, Steve Allen from Pyramid Media also told me that Roy Morgan is is generally seen as a high quality supplier um, not just in terms of uh, news figures 
Um, so I, I think you're working with a pretty trusted um, source there. And the sample size as well being that kind of um, 60,000 per year as far as, you know, extrapolating a figure, 60,000 is a pretty decent size. Um, on the AFR, he, he he also, you know, this is the, the, the one that a lot of people have been talking about this week. He noticed that Quite not everything- really, right? What was that? Sorry, questioning the the AFR figures, right? Yes, exactly. So, but what he he kind of noted was that not everything is behind a paywall on there, but um, you know, and just it, for for listeners out there, the readership figures of three point five million thereabouts. If I'm yeah, thereabouts correct, for, for um, a publication behind again behind a, a paywall. But look, and, and and as you say at the start, there you well, you kind of joked they they do have confidence, but again there's not really much choice but to have confidence or not confidence but trust the figures because that's all you're working with. Clients do believe they're getting good value um, based on um, b- based on the figures that they're getting. And this is, as, as Steve said, uh, for some clients, news is the be-all and end-all. And for that kind of on-platform news, the figure um, for investment is still about 50, it was It remains about 50-50 between digital and print actual um, investment. Liv, I think you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say that this situation, um, it is, you know, (laughs) Damien joked about it, but actually it is the best that the industry has at the moment because of the stalemate between the Interactive Advertising Bureau and Nielsen with regards to their digital content ratings, um, which have not been released by Nielsen to the general public. They're only released to each individual uh, publication because of a stalemate with the IAB over the uh, integrity of that data. Obviously, the IAB is about to switch providers in that they're moving from Nielsen to Ipsos um, in Q2 next year or it's scheduled for Q2 next year. So I think we'll have to wait and see what happens there as well because if you've got the, you know, the real independent measurement system, i.e. Um, IAB and Nielsen not being made available, and then obviously the industry body's data is being made available, not surprising that they would want that data made available because it's controlled by them. So I think we'll, we will have to wait and see what happens next year once Ipsos and their measurement systems are up and running to really get a better understanding of what exactly the behaviours are in, in Australian media with regards to particularly digital news websites. And and that, just just quickly, that was what Sam said from, um, from Cara. He said, look, we, we do trust these figures and it's, it is showing the strength of and the power of print and digital news still. But again, it's a small sample size based on since we've had that switch and so we're probably going to need a few more data sets to then make an accurate kind of assessment of things. Moving on to the next big story in Australian media, we'll be speaking about Seven and the big money interview that was withheld. One of the biggest stories of the week has been that of the botched interview of singing superstar Adele by Seven's Matt Doran. It emerged that Sony had exercised its right to withhold the interview, part of a bigger deal between Sony and Seven, when Doran revealed during the chat with Adele that he had only listened to one song on her latest album. 
Doran was allegedly suspended for the incident, although there are conflicting reports about what actually went on. With Doran being quoted as saying the interview actually ran long at 29 minutes as opposed to the 20 that was scheduled, despite Sony deciding to withhold it. It's another PR challenge for Seven and also provides an insight into how celebrity interviews are negotiated. Liv, there's a few different versions of the story flying around. What do we know so far? Yes, there are. And it's, uh, you know, when the news becomes the news, um, poor. <laughs> I do feel sorry for, for Matt. It's um, it's probably not how he envisaged this interview to go down, uh, becoming the story instead of becoming the guy who nabbed this great interview with Adele. But there, the main things that seem to be coming through, and again, there is a bit of hearsay in all of this, although uh, he has spoken on record to a number of publications about what happened. But basically it does sound like he missed an important email. Um, which, all been know, guilty of that. <laughs> we have all been guilty of. So, you know, not not the biggest crime in the world. Um, but then obviously it it's come to pass during the interview that uh, he, he hasn't listened to <laughs> Uh, the album, which I think um, we at Mumbrella were very quick to compare to this uh, scene in Notting Hill where uh, Hugh Grant is at the uh, interviews with all the celebrities of the new movie and he has no idea what it's about. So can only imagine the horror on uh, poor Matt Doran's face when Adele asked him about the album and what he thought of it. Um but yeah, essentially it seems like he missed the email, he hadn't listened to the album, he got through most of the interview and then that came to light and then at some point after the interview the Sony executives decided not to release it to Seven, which I think for us in the media sector raises a few other more important questions. Firstly, the fact that Seven spent all this money, a reported $1 million, although some sources have said it was less than that. But you've got to wonder how it is that they could spend that sort of money, even if it was just under a million dollars, on something that actually hasn't come to light. And then I think the other really important thing is where's the editorial integrity? Because if Sony is controlling the actual footage and filming and recording of the interview, even though Seven sent people over there to do it, how how can anyone ask any kind of legitimate questions when they don't know that they're actually going to get the end result? And I think that's the more important thing to come out of all of this for us in the media. And, and I think it's a, probably a good lesson for a lot in the media in terms of how and when you should allow these, you know, agents or brands or in, in this case, obviously her label to control that much of the editorial process. So, it, yeah, it, it's definitely brought up some very big questions for um, for seven shareholders and, and for media buyers. I think the, the more important thing would be, you know, what's happened to that money now? Obviously, Sony's probably pocketed it and, uh, and yet seven has got nothing for it. They got a stitched together special because they couldn't even get the Oprah interview. So it is. It does just leave a, a lot of question marks around the operations and and the integrity of of Seven in regards to having these sort of interviews lined up with celebrities and with these kind of you know parameters around the interviews, which they're paying a significant amount of money for. 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think you've got a really good point there on the the editorial integrity, and it's something that you know I think if journalists are honest, we've been talking about for quite some time, particularly in different sectors of the industry. You know, former tech journal here, and I think it's one of those sectors which it's very easy to start asking questions about the integrity and the brand input there and the control that brands and their agencies have over the process when it comes to some of the exclusives and, and some of the uh, interviews that are lined up and, and some of the, uh, I guess, press that certain brands end up getting and exclusives that end up running. And, you know, uh, interestingly enough, then it's followed by advertising and, and things like that. It's quite a murky area. And I think you're right. It's it, it's one that needs more discussion. Um, you mentioned the the shareholders and, and the investors. Uh Look, do you think there's really going to be any significant lasting uh, effects on on Seven, perhaps its relationship with Sony uh, on on the ASX uh, at all? Or do you think this will be something that, you know, in two weeks, it's going to have blown over. We'll have all forgotten it ever happened. Matt Doran will be back on Weekend Sunrise and, and the world will keep turning. I, th- I think it will definitely, but I think it does also just – contributes to an overall kind of situation for Seven that they've had this year. And look, it was raised at the AGM and, you know, Seven unfortunately this year has seemed to have quite a few um, situations where they've become the news instead of just covering the news. So, you know, earlier in the year we've had the whole Katie Hopkins debacle with Channel 7's uh, Big Brother VIP Um you know, she got evicted from the country before she had even been let out of hotel quarantine. Uh, we also have had Seven and the whole um, Ben Robert Smith uh, because of the legal fees and, and that obviously that ongoing case that he has against um, Nine Entertainment Co and its publications for coverage and, and defamation. They've now got a new defamation case with regards to the incorrect identification of a man in regards to... Um, the missing little girl, Cleo, in WA. And and then they had the social media post, um, the racist one that they, you know, made a uh, apology for, an official apology for following the uh, Euro football tournament. So it does unfortunately feel like out of all the big major networks, Seven just has had a string of bad luck this year. And I think that will weigh on the minds of investors and shareholders when they're looking at how the company is being run and, and the editorial decisions, et cetera, that they're being uh, that are being made. Um, at the AGM, someone did question why uh, James Warburton was being paid a base salary almost as much, or I think maybe even slightly um, below, just below what uh, Mike Sneesby is on at nine, even though nine is worth significantly more in terms of market cap than seven. So although, yes, this will blow over and and I'm sure Matt will be fine, his career will continue to prosper, but it just, it it contributes to an overall uh, situation for seven. Well, there certainly haven't been many journalists shy of an opinion over the last uh, few days. We all seem to like throwing a a stone inside a glass house, but uh, regardless, we'll move along quite quickly because coming up next, Cal will be chatting to The Hallways' Simon Lee. (laughs) 
Simon Lee, Partner and Executive Creative Director at Creative Agency The Whole Way. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the reason we have you on today is due to the campaign that yourself and The Whole Way released on Monday in conjunction with uh, University of Melbourne Centre for Mental Health, Mental Fitness Foundation, Gotcha for Life, Eris Films, uh, with support also from Unlimited, an initiative centred around encouraging men to speak up on dealing with mental health and anxiety. It's a take on The Cure's uh, classic hit, Boys Don't Cry, reworked into a 30-man choir singing Boys Do Cry with lyrics written by yourself. Is that correct? It is, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think a good place to start would probably be um, how the campaign came together. I know I understand it was a three-year journey from start to finish, so... It would be interesting to get your thoughts on just, you know, from the starting point up to, you know, Monday morning's um, delivery of the, the video. Yeah, yeah. I mean, before we sort of go into that, first of all, it's um, it, it's extremely exciting to finally see this campaign kind of go out into the world. And the, the response that we've had so far in the first few days of the campaign has been has been super, super positive. And I'm I and, and all of my team are hugely grateful for everyone who's, who's getting who's getting behind it. So in terms of how it came about, it, as you say, it was a three-year journey, and it started really. I was sort of coming out of the back of, of quite a quite a, a difficult um, period myself, and as I was coming out of that coming out of that period, I picked up a book by the British artist Grayson Perry called um, "The Descent of Man," and I was reading this book, and he describes in it what he calls the the ministry of masculinity and the ministry of masculinity that, that of course it's a it's an imaginary an imaginary thing but it's this this notion of a whole series of unofficial unwritten rules of masculinity that the vast majority of blokes unconsciously adhere to and when i was when i was reading about this it was a real sort of light bulb moment and i'd always thought of myself as a pretty sort of emotionally kind of um able um, kind of guy, but as I read this, I realised that absolutely I too am bound by these commandments. So it's you know it's classic sort of classic sort of things that, that, that you know things like um, you know don't be vulnerable, um, you know keep your keep your emotions to yourself. When when the going gets tough, man up, be strong, get on with it. All of those all of those sorts of things. And of course, one of the key kind of um, unwritten unofficial commandments of masculinity is that boys don't cry and as i was reading this and starting to 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 want to 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 do something about about this i was um sat sat in a room with um with a couple of colleagues and throwing around some ideas and that's when we hit on this idea of transforming boys don't cry into boys do cry and that really was the most single-minded um, way of doing the job that that I thought needed 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 doing, and then obviously from there it, it you know it transformed into what is now this this campaign and it's being released as an official song. Um, you got sign off from the Cures frontman Robert Smith himself. Uh, did you did you initially have an idea as to you know turning that into the video that it was thirty men? singing from all these kind of um it, it was quite i guess emotive in the way that you know you've got 
men from all walks of Australian life in there, kind of representing the the, the wider population. Yeah, look, it was it went through it went through a whole number of different of, of different iterations over 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 the three years. The only thing at the outset that I was certain of was that was was that was that transformation. And then, uh, you know, of course, from from that point, there's a whole number of steps that you've, you that you've got to go through. The first being actually, can we can we get permission um, from Universal Music and from the from the Cure to to use the lyrics? So there was a, um, a you know a, a presentation to those guys that was a that was a really important a really important part of the process. Um, of course, the writing of the lyrics themselves that was an interesting one. You know, I I am a writer, but I've never really written songs um before i've written some pretty bad poetry and i've written a lot of a lot of scripts of varying of varying varying lengths and i was um i was sort of sitting with um charlton hill who's a, a good friend of mine over from uncanny valley who is actually a singer songwriter and um he'd been sort of with me since the beginning of, of this project and um he said mate look i think we're getting to the stage where we've got to write the we've got to write the song and um i kind of nodded you know, kind of hoping that Charlton was going to write the song, um, <laughs> and then I was like, "So who's going to, you know, who, who's who's going to do that, Charlton?" He's like, "You are." I was like, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, you you know, you go and write the song." So I was actually about to um, head off on a trip to visit family back in um, back in Europe, and we were staying in a little cottage in the in the Welsh hills, and I kind of just locked myself away for a couple of days and um, out flooded. Um, out flooded the, um, the the these lyrics that have remained pretty much unchanged since I, mm-hmm. I first wrote them. So we got the sign off then, um, well, you know, a- approval on on those lyrics um, from the Cure. But then, of course, you you basically just got a, at that point. So we had a we had a song, but we didn't have any money. We didn't have we didn't we didn't have anything anything beyond that. So we then went through a fairly lengthy period of of, of, of trying to chase funding to to make to make this thing happen. Um, and the way that ultimately came about was was just fantastic sort of synchronicity, I guess. That that one of the other one of the other things that were a big inspiration for this project was um, Gus Warland's Man Up documentary series on the ABC. And um, someone had pointed me in the direction of that show, so I was I was watching that at home, and I found myself literally in floods of tears watching this one scene in particular where. Gus's son and his schoolmates are sat kind of basically learning to express their emotions in front of their classmates. And it was it was hugely emotionally powerful, but it also really gave me hope that 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 change was possible and it kind of made me made me even more committed to trying to trying to make this happen. Um, and to cut a sort of a long story short, probably about it's probably as long as as long as a year after I'd watched that watched that show, I got introduced to Gotcha for Life by Rachel Troy at um, at Unlimited. So it was just mm-hmm. after the first Sydney lockdown, and um, you know Gus Warland and his, the the producer of the Man Up Man Up documentary, Jennifer Cummins, came into the office here 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 at the hallway, and we had a a fantastic meeting. You know, Gus was. Gus was um was was really enthusiastic about the project, and he said, "Listen, mate, I I think I, you know I think we can, I think we can help help you guys make make this happen, and I'd love for it to to be in partnership with with Gotcha for Life." So that was a that was that was a key a key piece, and then through um 
through Jennifer Cummins. Um, she had the very strong University of Melbourne connection, and um, that was kind of one of the final pieces of the final pieces of the of, of the jigsaw to actually get this get this thing going. And then from um, from from that, it was about really getting great creative partners on board. So we were absolutely delighted when um you know we had conversations with sam long at, at um at good oil and they were uh, you know committed to it from top, from the outset and brought tom campbell the director on board um and um along with the whole a whole crew of people there um we shot it back in um i think it was in in may this year and the shoot day was the shoot day was incredible it was it was it was a hugely moving experience um walking up walking up um the road towards Marrickville Town Hall where we shot and hearing the song being sung you know in rehearsals by this by this by this choir um I've got to admit I did um I mean in fact there were a lot there were there were a lot of tears shed that day by a lot of a lot of people involved and um yeah I was I was one of them yeah, I, you know, I've seen comments on Twitter and such with um, people saying just watching the video, they've kind of teared up. I think um, the the kind of imagery of having it in that kind of uh, the community hall setting, which is commonly associated with, you know, these kind of um, meetings or, you know, support groups, which I think for for many men um, or I, I guess the wider population is, is also a first step in kind of acknowledging um your own struggles and i know um it's something that you know you've had your experiences with and this is partly why um you've spoken about uh, you wanted to address this and there's some some figures in um i think that, that the university of melbourne um center for mental health put forward and they're saying that around three quarters of suicides are by men about seven men take their lives each day in australia um with you know, uh, they've also been the leading cause of death for Australians between the age of 15 and 49. It's obviously a really important issue and something that maybe, you know, isn't spoken about, but more, more specifically in the ad industry, I think it is another thing that um, really needs to be touched on because doing some research for this, I've, I looked back on some figures from an industry survey last year that re- reported that um, around 56% in, in the ad industry in particular experience symptoms of depression annually and 52% have, uh, have expressed anxiety with around only 6% thinking that their company uh, anonymously was addressing mental health effectively. Do you think that there's something specific about the ad industry that maybe these numbers are particularly higher than the more general population? Um, I, I I don't know the sort of statistics across across other industries, but obviously I have been working in the in the creative industries around advertising and, and film for um for for just just over just over twenty just over twenty years, and the thing that the thing that I would say is that I think, well, in in my own experience, I've realised that there's been times in my life where my sense of self worth has been hugely tied to my professional and creative achievements. And I think one of the things about working in the creative industries is that rejection. <laughs> constant and consistent rejection comes part and parcel with the with the territory for every one 
fantastic idea that gets up. There's 50 where you have poured your heart and soul into this thing and someone just puts up their hand and says no. And, you know, when you're, when you're a junior, that's really, hard to, that's really hard to bear. As you become more senior, you get, you get a thicker skin, but I don't think it ever really goes away. I think to do brilliant creative work, you have to invest yourself personally and emotionally in it you, you absolutely have to all of the all of the best work has got people's souls with, with, with souls within it um and so uh, yeah i i think that i think for for anyone at, at a point that sort of rejection that is your rejection of your idea but because there's so much of you in it it is and it can feel like a like a, re, a rejection of a rejection of you um, it, 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 I can absolutely see how that can be tied to um, tied to mental health issues, and it certainly, you know, when when I was going through a hard time, I have n- I have no doubt that that was part of it. And I guess now is a really important time because we do see a lot of these initiatives coming out of agencies, kind of speaking about mental health. Um, I, you know, anecdotally, I've had. Uh, people in the industry say to me that um, maybe these come without the acknowledgement that that you know part of it is caused by the workplace itself. Do you think there is a responsibility from the agency to kind of help people deal with their own mental health and kind of you know be maybe a bit more honest about the the, the causation itself? Look, I think I think to sort of to stand up and go and say agencies need to take more responsibility for their people's mental health is that's a very big a very big statement to make and i think within that it sort of suggests that they're consciously not taking that responsibility and and i don't actually think that is the case i think that on the whole um most people and most leaders in this industry are absolutely concerned about about their people's mental well-being and if they become if they become aware and conscious of of the fact that there that, that there are issues then they will then 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 I would like to think, and I might be naive, but i but I'll persist in being optimistic and thinking that people will people people do want to change it but i i think I think the best thing that we can do is kind of what we're doing here right now, and it's just talk about it it's talk about it and just 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 um normalize normalize um mental health issues like i have sat in meetings over my career where i've had um i've been sat there about to present something with sweaty palms that odd sort of um almost out of body kind of feeling sitting there and and occasionally i have i have found myself going gosh i wonder if anyone else in the room here is actually feeling this but when you're kind of when you're caught up in it you're convinced that that they're not that it's just you it's just you who's there kind of with your mind racing freaking out wondering what's going to come out of your mouth when you when you stand up the reality is it's not it's not just me it's not just you it's 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 a lot of people at a lot of times in their life and i think it's i think it, it's just about being totally honest and open about it unburdening ourselves of all, of our individual um sort of dirty little mental health secret it's like no is this is this this is being human so that's that's let let's be cool with that and then do whatever it is we need to do to um to to um to to address it do you, do you think it's as simple as just talking about it because i know that 
people who have been, you know, in the industry for multiple decades and haven't maybe had that experience or haven't had to maybe address it, it can be quite a tricky topic to talk about. And, you know, now we've got this opportunity with almost a full reset, people coming back to offices and maybe in more hybrid ways. But I I do feel like maybe, you know, things like hybrid working hours, it it seems like there was steps taken during COVID. But then, you know, a, a, a young creative I was talking to last week, she was saying, I was in the office till 10.30 at night and then I was back in at 7 a.m. And that, you know, is something that kind of damages people's mental health because you can it can lead to burnout and things like that. I think there has to be maybe some sort of uh, acknowledgement that it, it, it for some it might be harder to do, but obviously it's essential to, to actually get talking about it, as you say. Yeah, look, I'm not... When, 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 I, when I say that talking about it is, you know, is is key is key that's not that's not i'm not saying that that's easy to do yeah but uh, and and i don't and i don't pretend for a second to have all the answers as to how we how how we how we deal with it but one of the things as you were talking that sort of came into my mind is the fact that none of us have any issue sort of calling up and telling our manager or or, or what have you that, that we're not going to come to work today because we've got a cold or we've got a you know you've got the flu or you've got some kind of physical 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 ailment um but i think there is still a taboo and a discomfort about calling up and sort of going you know what i'm 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 really struggling i'm really struggling um men- mentally today um and so i think i think it's i think it's it's creating an environment where that where that conversation um, um, becomes okay, and that that we have people within our agencies who are then um, trained to be able to respond in a way that can that can help that can help that person. So that you know, if I am calling up, going, you know what, I'm really struggling. You know, I'm, I'm super anxious today. That the person I'm talking to can can actually come back and go, okay, well, um, you know. Do you have the support? Do you have the support that you need? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And can guide people in the right direction to potentially um, come out of that positively. And I think just finally, because obviously the campaign is is focusing on the struggles that men have in in speaking out about their own struggles. Um, do you think that there's maybe still a sort of disconnect in the way that men interact with each other in the the advertising industry in terms of is there still barriers in place there in the, in the kind of work culture that maybe prohibits that yeah absolutely like absolutely like i will be going i think in a week or week, a week or two weeks time i'll be sitting at the um you know the campaign brief legendary cocktails thing with a with a, a whole a whole load of creative directors and what have you and we you can, can be promoting a rival uh, events on our <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, sorry sorry about that but that is but that is going to be you know that's that is that is where there's a, a whole there are and it's not just it's not just guys there's been big efforts made to made to change that but there will be a whole load of um of male leading male creatives creatives there and this the sort of sense that you get is is a bunch of super confident super successful kind of guys but i can absolutely tell you that within within all of those people this is a whole load of creative people creative people are prone to these issues that they will there will be people sitting there but that is absolutely not what we'll be talking about there'll be a sort of lot of 
a lot of a lot of creative bravado um you know a lot of lo- laughing a lot of banter a lot of a lot a, a, a lot of a lot of joking and and not and not much beyond that and i think that is actually um you know a, a, an example of of how blokes still are and let's face it there's still got to be a place for that we're not advocating or suggesting that every you know we're constantly as blokes having having deep and meaningful conversations conversations and pouring our hearts out no sometimes we do just want to you know have a laugh but it's knowing that it's knowing that when you need it you can go beyond that you can go beyond that and that's some of the work that gotcha for life is doing which is fantastic around around actually identifying in your network who are the people that you can actually um, download with, that you can actually kind of express your express your feelings to, and that's one of the things I feel really lucky to have. You know, two or three mates who I I, I know that I can talk to talk to them about absolutely absolutely anything, and just knowing that I've got I've got that network um, is um is 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 great. Yeah. Of course, and you know, as you say, it comes with the acknowledgement that you know, not everyone is the, the the ideal person to speak to. But the importance of having or identifying those people is is a great starting point. Well, Simon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, and congratulations again on the campaign, mate. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cheers. And that's it for this week. We are done for another seven days. Live, Cal. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Damien, and happy birthday to you both for the weekend. Woohoo. Saturday, best day, best day of the year.